All right, everybody, welcome to Curiouser and Curiouser, the show about everything. Um, I'm your host, Sadayu Srinivasan, and we do this every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sometimes we do additional shows um, that can happen at any time. Um, next week, we have a great show coming up with the former CEO and chairman of the Intel Corporation, Craig Barrett, who is actually the COO, CEO chairman of the board, board uh, member, um, and had held positions since basically the entire time I've been alive, since the mid-70s till about uh, 2008. Uh, he's also deeply focused on education, has funded a $10 million endowment at Arizona State University, along with his illustrious wife, who uh, bears some mention here because she was our former secretary of the Air Force. Uh, also a fighter pilot, a ambassador to Finland, worked uh, in several presidential uh, administrations and I believe cabinet positions. So uh, also somebody uh, that uh, noteworthy to watch, but we have a interview with him next week uh, about education and charter schools. Uh, he's also, oh, I should also mention, he's my former boss and investor and today a friend. Uh, very lucky to call him a friend. So that will be on next week. Uh, time to be determined because it's a pre-recorded show, but we do hope that you will tune in for that. Um, so today we have a really fascinating guest, um, really interesting, very substantive, super fascinating. Um, his name is Michael Nestor, and he is a neuroscientist. Uh, uh, Michael did his PhD in neuroscience and a postdoc fellowship at NIH uh, and at the New York Stem Cell Foundation. He was also a staff scientist. He's a AAAS fellow and was in government when I was there, although strangely, we did not pass each other. Um, I did know one of his colleagues who was on the NSTC uh, subcommittee lab to market uh, along with me and would bump into him. But we never actually met, which was uh, a sad thing, but we're making up for lost time now. Um, Michael has decades of research experience. Um, and uh, he was a director of the neural stem research uh, at the Hussman Institute for Autism. Uh, he founded a company called Synapstem, which eventually became a consulting company but it was a spin out of his laboratory work where he was working on CRISPR and drug screening uh, platforms to work with uh, genotypes and phenotypes of autism. And he, we will get into all of that. Um, but also interestingly, and I've had more than one person reach out to me about this. Um, he also founded a and ran an independent rock label. Um, and that's, I came out of the hardcore DC punk rock scene of the 80s and 90s. And so, of course, when Michael and I sort of found out that we had this common background, we were like, what? Um, and of course, it's very relevant to what he does as a entrepreneur and a scientific entrepreneur. So let's stop talking about him like he's not in the room and welcome Michael Nestor. Michael, welcome to the show. Dr. Nestor, I should say. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, it is funny that we didn't pass each other uh, or interact with each other during our time, but it was such a hectic time in the government that I'm not that surprised, right? It's such a big place and there was so much going on. So, um, but you're certainly right. We are making up for lost time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And, but, you know, we fellows stick together. All the fellows across, with so many fellowships in government, 
they should all get us all together because there's so many interesting connections. And I know that when we, you and I have talked, we're like, oh my God, that's crazy. That's crazy. And there's so many areas of collaboration and common thinking. And, um, you know, when I met you, I was so impressed. I am not impressed very easily. Um, and I don't give praise very easily. And you can double check that with Craig Barrett. Um, I was so impressed at the substance of the talk that you were giving and what you had done. And we also have very similar sorts of views about uh, collaboration across silos, uh, not just in government, but in business. And I think particularly when it comes to kind of the sciences um, and technical areas, because people are so siloed um, in their work. And so I guess what, I want to take a step back and kind of understand a little bit about your journey uh, in the neuroscience and um, how you ended up coming to found this company, Synapstem. I know it's going to be a bit of a journey, so please go ahead and, and start with where your interest started and how you came to actually go ahead and found this company from your work in the laboratory. Yeah. And, you know, and it's great. And, 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 and the feeling's mutual. And I feel the same way, you know, having talked to you and got such an impressive background and I love what you're doing here with this forum. And it's just so nice to meet, like, as we were talking, you know, like-minded folks that really think about de-siloing and how important that is. And um, that's been kind of a theme, I think, through my journey, but it's, but it really was, it's really highlighted, I think, in the last five or 10 years in science, but I mean, everybody understands now past, you know, as we've gone through this pandemic, why de-siloing things, particularly in scientific fields, is so important because it all does work together and it all does merge together. So, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, just a little bit of sort of history or background for me. So I, I started um, my journey really um, as a neuroscientist. I, I wanted to study neuroscience because... Um, I was actually very interested in physics and I had, Oh, wow. <laughs> that's where I really started. Something um, else in common. That's my <laughs> biggest regret. No physics, no engineering in my background, but. Well, it's funny cause I was in, I, I remember this very distinctly. Um, I didn't know what I was doing at the beginning of college. So I wrote down, I was going to be a drama major because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> put something in there until I figure this out. And then I realized pretty quickly that I actually had to take some courses. <laughs> so, uh, and, and then uh, quickly changed my, my major. But I, I remember sitting in my freshman physics class and I remember the professor saying something along the lines of, you know, how we measure things um, and how we measure phenomena in the world, no matter what that measurement is is really a reflection of the perception of the measurer, right? And so in right. the case of physics, it's, you know, how what, what we decide to use as our ruler determines how we interpret the result. And so for some reason, and of course, being really young and impressionable, I said, aha, that's what I, if I really need to figure it all out, you know, like I really need to understand the human brain because it's the perception that is really setting the tone for how we understand the universe. And so um, being very kind of, you know, very self-absorbed, very early, I guess, late teenager, early 20-ish um, person, I, I, I decided I really wanted to study neuroscience. And so I started on that journey um, as an undergraduate and then went on to graduate school to study neuroscience, particularly interested in learning and memory, because that to me was the crux of how you could really understand consciousness and perception and 
somehow by virtue of, I don't know how, but in my, you know, my early twenties brain, I thought, okay, well then that'll, that'll let me understand fundamentally that measuring stick that, that I was talking about. So, so I, I did that. I was trained really in electrophysiology. So that's really the study of how electrical impulses and neurons get translated to the release of neurotransmitters at the synapse, how those cross the synaptic cleft. And then of course, are then translated from the chemical signal back into an electrical signal in what we call the postsynaptic neuron. And I was really focused in an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is really an area that is involved in learning and memory and focused like most academic researchers in animal models. And so that work was really interesting and led me to expand that um, when I did my postdoc at the NIH into sort of focusing that learning and memory um, interest in the hippocampus into more of a disease relevant um, research area because I then began to really think, you know, it's not just understanding learning and memory for its own sake, but how could, how can we actually, you know, understand disease states and affect disease states and ultimately develop treatments for people who are suffering from diseases which affect learning and memory. So it was while I was at the NIH um, during my postdoc that I, um, had another sort of intervention, um, a scientific intervention, in the sense that I was uh, working in these animal models, mouse models, um, and it was late at night. I was I, always spending really late nights in the lab. I'm sure most people that work in labs can, can relate to that. Um, and I was talking to another postdoctoral fellow, and, and he sort of innocently asked me the question, if you're so interested in Alzheimer's and autism <laughs> and these things, why why exactly are you doing this in mice and rats? I mean, we can do some things with mice and rats, but these are inherently human diseases. Don't, don't you think a human model would be better? And, and I said, by golly, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. Right. So, um, which is really funny because he, 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 him and I used to joke around because we were always on the night shift. Um, And I always feel like I have a soft spot for folks that work, work the night shift in the labs um, his excuse though, was that he was a, he had a young child at home. My excuse was that I just really liked working at night. Um, oh, I was just going to say, this is so all punk rock. It's like all coming together. <laughs> it really is. And I'll tell you the funny reason that happened too, by the way, working the night shift. One of the reasons that had to happen that way was because I was during my graduate work, I was out playing shows like seriously and running a label. And so it's kind of moonlighting. So I had to, I had to constantly bounce back and forth getting my work done because it had to be done. Research had to be done, but then also being able to have the second life. And, um, you know, there's only so many hours of the day, right? So you, you just kind of have to figure out how to creatively schedule all of that and make it all work. Um, that said, and I, I, I would always say before I get back to the crux of my journey, you know, I couldn't have done one without the other. We can get into that later, but um, I absolutely had to have that, and I still do to this day, have to have that creative artistic outlet um, in order for me to be good at science. Um, and, and by good, I mean I, with a lower lowercase g, not that I think I'm like a Nobel Prize winner or anything, but, but you know, just for me to be functional as a, good, as, a, as a solid scientist, it's really important to have both of those. But it also requires a lot of sacrifice, right, and a lot of juggling <laughs> a lot well, of times i want to i wanted to just say you're in terrific company i i think i mentioned to you that when on one of our calls that 
Um, there are not many of you in the world, but um, as you know, Dexter Holland from The Offspring uh, has his PhD in molecular biology. Um, and he has given, um, and he actually, I'm literally looking at an article that says balance is important. Um, and this is a guy that was actually on his way uh, studying uh, diseases and cures and uh, decided to go tour with The Offspring. Um, and then came back and finished it, I think in the last, in the last five years, he finished it. He's been giving sort of the commencement, uh, he, he got his BS, I think in biology from USC, uh, came back, did his master's and then came back much later and did his PhD, but he has, uh, come and given the, uh, commencement, um, the commencement talks at multiple universities now. So there are not many of you, but it's wonderful to hear that there are people that subscribe to, especially when they're into music and music that I like, um, uh, that are connected to science. But I, uh, before you move on, I also want you to think about one question you threw out at the beginning of the conversation that um, that people in science now do sort of do accept that there needs to be more kind of of what we call uh, what we used to call at least my mother as a professor, uh, a run, you know, she would say, we're trying to create these Renaissance people that um, have steam going on, right? Science, technology, engineering, arts, math, I think is what I said, but, but has a little bit of everything. Um, but I have still found that to be um, not the case when I'm talking to technical and scientific founders. So when you're done talking about your journey, I'd love to hear sort of what makes you think that things are kind of moving in a direction or people are more uh, accepting of, uh, you know, of the idea that maybe it's okay to leave your laboratory and, you know, play violin or pursue Shakespeare or be on stage or whatever? Yeah, that's a really good and interesting question. Um, and I definitely have some thoughts about it. So I'll come back to it. But just to your point, one of my contemporaries at the time that I was playing and touring and all of that was... Um, a band called the American Analog Set, who I absolutely loved. I, I say contemporary because uh, contemporaries, not that we were sort of at the same level. They were they were a little bit older than us and um, in, in terms of timeline and also, uh, a, you know, definitely a little bit on a bigger stage than us. But but the, the lead singer, Andrew Kenny, who I have a lot of respect for, actually did a funny story. Andrew Kenny and Ben Gibbard of um, Death Cat for Cutie did a really great um, album um, that's called Home. That's just an amazing sort of like acoustic record before Death Cab was really a household name. Um, but anyway, Andrew Kenny, same thing. You know, he went off. In fact, I think he, he actually stopped the American Analog set to go pursue a PhD at NYU, if I remember correctly, in molecular biology as well. I think it was either that or bi maybe it was biochemistry. But I remember people saying to me like, hey, have you heard of this guy, Andrew Kenny? So to your point that there's so few people in the world that are that do that kind of thing. Um, it's funny because I would always get people to ask me about what, you know, what it was like for him. And I'm like, well, you know, you probably could email him and ask him directly. <laughs> but it's always a funny kind of uh, interesting thing. And it was also it was also an inspiration to me um, because because quite honestly, um, and you can hear, you can tell that there are a lot of parallels here with being an entrepreneur, but you know, there were times where I was doing one or the other, where I was like questioning myself, like, what am I doing here? You know, why yeah. am I, why am I doing these tours and staying up until two o'clock in the morning and then running back to the lab and, you know, doing experiments till 3am and then getting a couple hours of sleep and then coming back in, you know, like, what are you doing here, Michael? <laughs> like, um, 
but I, 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 you know, looking back on it and during the time, probably I would have said is that, you know, I just wouldn't have it any other way. But, um, but, but that said, you know, part of that journey and part of, part of meeting the people that I met, which had influence on me, I think was also caused by that mindset as well to come back to the, the idea of, you know, folks that were kind of on the night shift or folks that thought a little bit differently. And I always found myself attracted to people, you know, intellectually that are not sort of the standard sort of dogmatic thinkers. And there's nothing wrong with dogmatic thinking. I think you've got to have all kinds to make up a village. But the people that I have always run with or thought um, who, 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 you know, who have, you know, me, that I've admired are those that are a little bit, like you said, kind of punk rock about it, you know? So, um, and of course the most famous case that everybody cites is Feynman, right? And so, yeah. uh, but, 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 you know. And, to, and when you say Feynman, just to, to say Richard Feynman um, from MIT, the physics, uh, who's a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a professor and, and I think thought leader. It's At some point, you know, he kind of eclipsed, you know, <laughs> the actual job title. And, and of course, so I've always sort of been thinking along those lines. And so, so during that time when, when it was suggested to me, hey, why are you working in animal models? I also heard a lecture at the NIH from a group that was near my group at the time, um, st- uh, headed by uh, an early stem cell pioneer. His name was Ron Mackay. And he was talking about the power and the importance of human stem cells. Well, at the time, at the NIH, it was really difficult to work on human stem cells. So, um, because it was kind of, they weren't really mainstream yet um, completely. This was in uh, around 20, 2011, just to say, see how fast the field has blossomed. This was only, I mean, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. So, um, you know, at the time, there were only certain places you could go to work on human stem cells, especially human-induced pluripotent stem cells, which is where my interest was. So I ended up going up to the New York Stem Cell Foundation, which was um, a place that sort of sat between academia and industry. It was in on the campus of Columbia University, had a lot of advisement and, and, and input from the um, people at the Harvard Stem Cell um, Research Institute. And, you know, I went there to, because there wasn't a, there weren't a lot of electrophysiologists who wanted to study neurons derived from human stem cells. They just weren't. And I thought, well, this is great. I want to, I want to continue with my work in electrophysiology. I want to, I want to work on models that are relevant for diseases that really can, can have the genetic and, you know, in the genomic backgrounds of, of the individuals that were affected. And there was also a great niche. I was still a postdoc and thinking about starting my own lab and I needed a niche, you know, somewhere where I could sort of develop my own identity that wasn't just in the shadow of others, and um, but building on others. And so, so all of those sort of intersected. And I stepped a little bit outside of my comfort zone in that doing a short second postdoc, what they typically tell you is that you should go to a really prestigious institution, you know, to a Harvard or a Stanford or a Yale or what have you. And I thought really long and hard about that, and I and I certainly wanted to do that. But I also thought, where am I going to find the tools and the experience that I think are going to be the most impactful for my own personal development? And I saw the New York Stem Cell Foundation as a place to do that, and so it was a it was a really great place to be at the time I was there. I, I imagine it's probably still like this because it's in their DNA, um, but it's just really dynamic place. A lot of 
really cutting edge people there, forward thinking people. You know, at the time, like I said, human stem cell research was just starting to get going. So you really were with a bunch of people that had a mindset like, you know, we're, we're really trying to push the envelope here. And that's a great place to be. And on top of that, it was between academia and industry, and it did set the tone for how I, th- I thought through those problems down the line, because it's really there that I, th- I saw the magic happening. You know, really, I knew about the valley of death that we talk about, which is, you know, difficulty from getting research from the university out to the commercial space. Um, I saw it for myself with others. And I saw this place as a bridge building, you know, a, a, an organization that that built bridges across that valley. And they that's with how they thought of themselves. And so went there, spent some time there as a postdoc, was a staff scientist at the end, um, did a lot of really great research, did work with a lot of really great people. It was time to form my own group. And again, I was at another crossroads where the conventional wisdom is go to a university, start as an assistant professor, you know, work your way up the tenure track. And I thought, well, that's great, but this stem cell work is really expensive. And I really want to develop something that takes a treatment out to patients, which is going to require me to commercialize something at some point. And, and, I, and this was in 2014. And I was like, you know, I just don't really see the university as being there. Oh, are wow. a lot of- you started your company in 2014. No, no, I start I started my company later on, but, okay. um, but I started my lab in 2014. Okay. Um, didn't do that in a traditional university department, um, in a traditional university setting, because because I really thought about um, where because I was thinking ahead. I was knew that I was going to. I wanted to spin a comp. I wanted to develop techniques in my lab that would eventually spin out to a company, mm-hmm. and that's what drove me drove me away from sitting on a traditional tenure track sort of position. And so what I'm- I did. I was going to, by the way, I was going to groan when you when you were talking about traditional tenure. Like I go, oh, but I left out that sound effect. Um, uh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, it's okay. And and so you know, and I, so there's a lot of other dynamics that I could get into there about you know where where academia was even then. We talk about it the, where it is now, but where it was then. And I just looked across the landscape and I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to get the mileage that I need to, given that my work is very fairly expensive and that I would get stuck in the grant treadmill, which I had to write grants anyway, where I went, but I really wanted to focus on developing really cutting edge things that could be commercialized. And so anyway, I went to a privately funded institute, started my lab, was on a medical school campus. So I did have an appointment um, in the medical school. Um, But but it was just an adjunct appointment, but it allowed me, you know, to have grad students and postdocs and all of that. So I ran, you know, I ran sort of a traditional lab, academic lab, doing human stem cell research on brain organoids and looking for, you know, looking at genotypes and phenotypes in autism, which has really been my passion in terms of, of research. And, and, and that out of that work developed a technique um, and a platform that I could spin out. Um, and that's when I realized that I had something that was unique. That's when I formed the company. And so so I'm going to interrupt you for a second and say, what, then what was your impetus? Was it, um, was it that you thought that, Hey, this is something that's really cool and useful and unique and needs to be deployed. Was it, I need to continue my work and the way to do this is through this vehicle or was it, 
we can make a lot of money doing this. Or maybe it was all three. What was your impetus for leaving kind of uh, even, you know, the really kind of the safety of your shell to go out into the real world and take a risk, which is scary enough to normal people, but I think takes on a very uh, especially terrifying aspect when you are a uh, scientist that has had the kind of shelter of your academic institution or organization or laboratory, uh, and that's all you've known. Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, it was a little of one and two in that, you know, I, want, I had something that I thought would be unique and, 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 a, and a niche technology. Um, it was also the fact that I saw how grant money, the, 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 being able to, to do cutting edge work on NIH grants with less than a 15% acceptance rate for those grants was going to be a really, really tough slog to get any actual transformative work done outside of some institution where you just had a really big endowment, you know, and that's just the reality of it. And, and so, it's not, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've never myself written a grant, but I know it's a job in and of itself. It takes a lot of time. And so right. you are basically like fundraising 24 seven, if I'm, if I'm not incorrect about this. Right. And, 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 and to take that analogy even further, you're, whereas when you're doing VC rounds, right. And you're doing, you can, you can set up meeting after meeting after meeting and just take shots on goal, maybe 10 in a month if you want to, right. Be, um, but grants operate by cycle. So that means you've got to apply. You've got to wait for the feedback. You've got it. You're at the mercy of the review committee, what the politics of the review committee is, what the expert on the review committee is, um, whether or not your topic is something that is like, quote unquote, hot right now or not. Um, yeah. All of that. And then you have to wait for the feedback. Then you have to process the feedback. Then you have to reapply. You have to take all that feedback and integrate it into your reapplication and show either through experiments or some additional work that you've done that you've adequately addressed the comments. So, so it's like fundraising in slow motion with one arm tied behind your pack, walking through molasses, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, it's like having a bike with a drag on it. It's like, you're trying to go and you've got like this time and you're like, I've got this idea and you, and it's like, you're getting pulled back because like, there's something on your wheel that's down. You're going, but it's like, uh, um, and by the way, I mean, like fundraising, you know, in the traditional sense, uh, when we talk about technology companies, isn't sort of that smooth either. But certainly I know that with grant writing, there are jobs for grant writers because it is a thing. You know, you have to understand the language to use. It's like applying for a job in the government or writing a document for the government. There is a government speak and it needs to be put into that speak. So I can imagine that this is also something that is uh, really sort of a dreadful thing that uh, our scientific community deals with. Absolutely. And, and again, and this is not to disparage the grant process or even, you know, I got my grants or applied mostly to the NIH, which I think is an amazing organization. And I think it has to be said that as much as I'm, you know, sort of you know, expressing angst at the process at the same time, I have to say at least that process exists, right? I mean, there are really yeah. talented people that work really hard to streamline it the best they can. And I want to recognize those people because I worked with a lot of them as a fellow. And I know that 
where their minds are and what they're trying to do. So I don't want to sort of disparage them at all. No, I just, no. And let me, let me, and I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to interrupt you to say that that's absolutely, because as you know, um, the things that I was working on in the government about federally funded innovation, um, which underlies everything, every advancement in society uh, from LED lighting to tin cans, to GPS, to the internet, uh, came from the government. Um, and this takes time and you know, grant making process and SBI or SDTR, all of these things are a part of it. Um, it is just um, kind of in opposition, at least from the venture capital side of things to how the way venture capitalists want to operate. I also think, let me take a step back and say that I think with scientific, this is why I wanted to have this conversation. I think when you're doing something particularly in bio or pharma, um, all the sciences, but very, very specifically in things to do with biology and medical device, I think that the cycle, it's a, it's a, a little bit of a different animal, um, even in the fundraising with VCs. Um, but so there's sort of a, you know, there's, it's not to say that this is wrong. I, mean, I absolutely drank all of the Kool-Aid was I, when I was in the government. I think, I think we had this conversation where I was like, I absolutely understand that sort of the government is like, you know, oh, the mother of everything. Um, and I think that we need to acknowledge that it wasn't certainly anything that I was aware of as a financially driven investor that was focused on what I thought was cutting edge and advancement technology, not understanding the decades of work, uh, which is, you know, some of the stuff that you talked about um, feeding into, uh, you know, processes and the way that people think about things and inventing things in order to produce the iPhone you know, or something like that. Um, so I also want to say it's not to disparage. It's just when you are trying to do something entrepreneurial, these things become a drag. These very things that kind of set you up to uh, be able to delve into these topics also become a drag in the sense of they do things a certain way because it is the government um, and it, they do need to be fair and it does need to take some time and they do need to look at everybody equally and, uh, you know, they need to make sure that they're comparing apples to apples. Um, it, it is sort of in direct kind of conflict with, I want to get out there and fail fast. Yes. And, and, it, and, and I think you're right, in particularly in the biomedical sciences, it's a little bit of a different animal. Um, and I think what I'm describing is a lived experience that not everybody has. Um, yeah. Important to underline. Um, I'm, I'm describing one lived experience, but that lived experience really informed how I think about these problems and these questions. And, and so, you know, I think at least in the biomedical field, um, you know, I came up in a time where we kind of had a glut of PhD talent in the mm -hmm. pipeline. And I'll come back to a question that you asked me earlier about, um, you know, what you, you wanted to sort of talk about, you know, what drove you outside of the tr traditional academic. Yeah. Well, part of that <laughs> wasn't just my own ambitions. And, and to sort of put a point on the previous part of the question on my journey, the last reason I wanted to start this company was because I worked in an, I worked at a privately funded institute where I could write grants and I did, and I did get some state grants and I was applying for NIH grants, but I wanted the licensing tech, the license of the technology to come back into the privately funded institute to continue to fund our own basic research and development because 
our runway for research and development in terms of our funding wasn't going to last forever either. So, you know, it wasn't like, you know, so we, you know, thinking about that, how to bring value back to the organization that I was a part of, that's the other motivation there, particularly in the contents, context of helping families with autism, because that's what was really driving me. But to come back to the earlier question, part of that decision-making process, you know, we, I came up in a time where there are, there's a glut of PhDs, there still is. And one of the reasons that I stepped off the traditional academic track was, yes, some of it was my own, I, you know, I don't want to give too much credit to my own forward thinking here. I want to be honest and say, you know, I was living in a time where you're kind of kicked out of that system because you recognize mm-hmm. really quickly that if you really think critically, there's not much of a future for you there. Um, if you have an acceptance rate for tenure track professors, that's say below 5%, that means you have a 95% fail rate. Why would you want to stay? You know, if I'm playing the lottery and I'm scratching tickets and I know I have less than a 5% winning, um, ratio, you know, why would I want to continue to scratch tickets? Right. So, you know, and I wanted to just explain something to the audience for anybody that's not familiar with what sort of the PhD prospects are. Um, I actually was in discussions with a university because they are trying to set something up to try to get their PhD students to take jobs out, frankly, to start companies um, so that they could have jobs, essentially, um, you know, because there's just not that many teaching positions open. So they are admitting lots of folks into these programs, but they're just not that many jobs for people that want to go out uh, and, you know, pursue kind of a tenure track position. And so you're seeing, um, a bunch of these schools really like top, you know, I'm talking about like the top 10 schools that are like, Hey, we need to encourage our students that are coming in. Um, you know, and I, the area that I work in is more sort of the science and technical area to think about looking at the discoveries and the, and the research that they're doing uh, and to figure out, Hey, is there something here that I can actually turn into a company? Uh, is there something here that's useful? It's a whole nother sort of topic, but Sometimes a lot of the research, um, the research itself may not be the thing that turns into the company. It is uh, a side product. It's refuse. It's something that, you know, this is the story of when you look at the story of innovation, whether that is electrical tape uh, or, you know, Ray-Ban aviator sunglasses um, or all sorts of things that we use in our lives. They're often the side effects of something uh, that was, uh, you know, being principally researched at NASA or DARPA or something. So it's getting, and that also just want to tie it back, Michael, to your comment about how you are hoping for a less siloed world. Um, that's why it's very important for these folks that are sitting in laboratories to have a, more of a broad view, because if you're sitting there work and the world expert on, you know, XYZ and working on that, that's great. You're siloed in your lab. That's what you know, but you don't understand anything about what the potential applications could really be in the broader world. You're not sort of keeping on top of news that's happening and connecting that back to your work. Uh, You don't, you know, if you're not keeping track of sort of um, what's happening kind of current events wise, you may not be kind of attuned to, wait a minute, that refuse that came out of my experiment actually has properties that construction companies, you know, think are useful in the making of. So, um, I think it goes back to your point about, and also, you know, my mother's work of the last sort of several decades about trying to kind of drive more of a kind of a renaissance um, 
uh, kind of program in universities. We talk about classic liberal arts, but it's about having our scientists, you know, also uh, kind of mix with other folks and maybe take a Shakespeare class or do something else about having our our uh, liberal arts folks come in and maybe kind of dabble their 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 toes into the science walk. But it's that cross pollination that creates these and, you know, the serendipity that comes along with that, that creates these phenomenal opportunities. So I just want to tie it back to uh, actually, you know, your your uh, your very good point about how this kind of cross pollination needs to happen because it underlies everything in innovation. Well, and, and, and that's a great point. And, and, and that's why I said, you know, my lived experience has been de-siloing because I'm going to bring one other piece into this, not only because of the fact that I certainly recognized early on that being challenged by people outside of my area of expertise really enhanced my science, but also I did, I, my educational and socioeconomic background is poor lower middle class. That's where I came from. So when you look at these things, you look at them through a very pragmatic lens, which is, am I going to have a shot at producing something or am I not? And what is that product going to be? And so that also forces you to sort of make decisions about whether you're going to keep scratching the tickets for the 5% chance or whether you're going to go get a job because you, <laughs> you don't have the privilege, the economic privilege to sort of sit around and wait. Right. And so there's a lot of different dynamics here that we don't appreciate when we think about innovation that have nothing to do with science. And in <laughs> some way to kind of bring it full circle, they're so connected with how we do a lot of other things like art, like music. You know, when you think about art and music, you think about, I think about the artists I like, the musicians I like, they're listening to all kinds of different genres, all kinds of different genre, genres influence them. Um, I think the same could be said, I think, um, for science. I think that when you're doing really good science, you're, you might be a, a neuroscientist that's looking at oncology, you might be looking at cardiology, but you also want to have those folks, like you said, that are from business development or from a liberal arts background coming in and saying to you, you know, why are you doing it this way? Yeah. What, explain this to me. And, and I, I see what you think about this, but I see something very different. And I think, I think it's hard. The challenge I think for the academic innovator, because this is really where we're kind of focused right now in our conversation is that you're so, you're so siloed within creating expertise in your own field and at the same time, writing grants to get that, that it's a time problem. Yeah. I don't think it's not necessarily an unwillingness to spend time cross-pollinating or working with Really? <laughs> I'm I glad to hear that from you. Well, I think the, I think, I, let me, let me preface that by saying maybe for some older generations, but I definitely don't think my generation would be averse to sort of stepping outside of the comfort zone. I think most of the reason why most academics that I know have a difficulty doing it is because they're just bogged down with all kinds of minutia on the other end that they just can't do it. Um, or they don't have a forum in order to do it. So, um, one of the things that gets me really excited are a lot of these, um, incubator spaces and accelerator spaces where you're kind of bringing diverse groups of people together 
and kind of forcing them in the same space with one another. Um, but having the space isn't enough. You've got to have people that have that sort of de-siloing mindset as well. So, yeah. so and I want to, and I want to, before you go on and just, uh, you know, tell us how you, uh, you know, about your company, cause I want to get there as well. I just want to share a story with the audience, which I think is so demonstrative of what we're talking about. Um, and it's the story of <clears throat> uh, what's called, I don't, I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. It's Y-L-N-M-N blue, which is, uh, you know, blue is a very rare color in nature. Um, and this particular blue is a very bright kind of uh, blue color that was discovered uh, in the laboratory of uh, an Oregon State University researcher uh, named M. Subramaniam. And um, what it was, was uh, I think he was an electronics professor. It was the refuse of a project that he was working on. And uh, the graduate student who was running his experience was going to throw away the refuse. And uh, the professor said, hey, hey, wait a minute, hold on. Um, because he had been kind of this sort of person that was, uh, you know, I keep saying renaissance person, it doesn't really mean that you need to be anything. It just means that you are interested in lots of things. Um, you don't have to be, you know, a Shakespearean actor and a scientist. It just means that you're aware of the world around you. You're creating this opportunities for serendipity. Uh, you know, as Michael was talking about, you know, rubbing elbows with people that you may not normally see in your normal professional life, just because you never know what's going to come out of it. I've certainly run my life as an investor, a venture capitalist, and an entrepreneur that way, and phenomenal things have happened. But anyway, so this professor, just by virtue of the fact that he had his eyes open, um, knew that, um, you know, he realized that this refuse from the experiment that was this bright blue color, you know, we'll call it a powder, was non-toxic in nature. And he happened to know that this was something that was important for all sorts of commercial uses. He did not work for a paint company or a car company or anything. He just knew, you know, blue is a really rare color in nature. This refuse that is, uh, you know, the trash of an experiment that I produced um, is actually got properties. It's this brilliant blue, which is something that's valued in the world, and it's non-toxic. Uh, and that's interesting. And so he went ahead, more experiments on the refuge, and ended up commercializing that blue. Uh, little did he know that uh, down the road, all the paint companies and the car companies and everybody that needed that blue came to him to license that blue. And uh, I don't remember what year this was, but Crayola created a crayon in his honor. Uh, I think it was, maybe it was 20, I don't know, 2018, called Blutiful. And I just love that story. And so to honor him, there is a Crayola. Um, and if you actually Google it, there's actually a, a page that's devoted to this color, which came from this very kind of phenomenon that we're talking about, about somebody that's a hardcore, you know, in his laboratory scientist that because of his exposure, uh, because of his openness, uh, because of, and again, he wasn't like doing Shakespeare and he wasn't like, you know, acting Shakespeare in the park or, you know, running a marathon or anything. He just was sort of aware of, hey, these are properties that are important um, in actually lots of applications in the real world. And this color is something that sort of, how's it, how does he know that? He's clearly in and of the world. So just wanted to share that story because I think it is so demonstrative of exactly what we're talking about. But Michael, I would love to 
sort of um, turn the corner and hear about, you know, your company, sort of what happened to the company, uh, because I also kind of want to talk a little bit about the lessons that you learned from running a indie rock label and that how that helped you or didn't help you run this company. Yeah, and that's just a, just wanted to put a fine point on the story you told, which was really awesome. Very cool story. I think, you know, when you keep, when you were saying Renaissance, I think not, I think I want to agree with you and just say that, you know, what, I, what I think about um, when I think about people that I think you're talking about is not so much that you're, you have to take up an art or you have to, you know, that you have to take a class, uh, a bunch of classes in, in film, even though that's really cool and fun. Um, but more that you, you, you train yourself to be open-minded and to, I think to be flexible. And I don't think it comes for most people as sort of a natural thing to be open-minded and flexible. Certainly not for people that are, I think, working on incredibly substantive, difficult topics. They are obsessed and there is no room for anything else. I mean, the famous stories about Einstein would forget how to get home, you know, Mm -hmm. even though he lived on campus, like that's not a joke. There are, I know so many professors like that, that are working on, you know, really deep, um, hard topics, physics and whatever, you know, mathematics. And uh, these are people that like will forget that they've left with one sock on and you can go, Oh my God, what is, what is wrong with this guy? But that it's, that's the kind of sort of focus um, that creates all this amazing stuff in the world. But you also need to match that with how do we get that into the world? What are the applications? Uh, How do we make this useful for society? Et cetera, et cetera. Well, and so that would be one of my sort of practical pointers to walk away from this conversation with is you be flexible and open minded and seeing the figure versus the ground is an active process that you have to cultivate in your own life. And so it's not something that, you know, some people are, are born with it, some aren't. But it's something that you have to train like you would for a marathon. And that it, you'd always have to kind of be asking questions and thinking like that. And so so that would be an act. That would be something I think from that I would say to anyone listening that's saying, OK, well, that's great. Your story is great. It's a long one. But but really, like, what can what what is what can I get out of this? And I guess what I would say is I would really work on learning how to be open minded and, and maybe do some reading on how to increase the, the open-mindedness of your, of your thought processes, however that may work for you. So um, that, that'd be one thing to say. And then, and so to sort of, to turn the corner, as you said, into the, into the, into the company aspect of it, you know, I started the company um, without talking to the founder of, of, of my Institute um, at first, um, which, you know, I did that mostly because I wanted to have something of value to bring to him. You know, I wanted to get something going and then say, look at this really valuable thing. Um, and, 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 you know, how can I how can I leverage this to help you? Um, you know, and so um, I started the company um, to, and, and, and I did that. Um, I eventually did tell him, you know, and, and, and we did discuss, you know, sort of, um, you know, how to how to whether the IP that I was generating was valuable for, for the Institute and all of that. But, but, but I, I founded the company really the, with the idea of licensing this technology and also as additional, you know, to, to, to tap into additional funding to do what was and still is very expensive, you know, basic science research. So, um, so that's kind of, 
part of what I was doing. And then, you know, as I went through that journey, what I needed to do to, to sort of understand what I was doing was to, to spend more time in the venture community. So um, me being me, instead of just going out and pitching, um, I actually asked a volunteer to be a reviewer for the University of Maryland School of Medicine Momentum Fund, which was a small venture fund there, um, so that I can learn how to properly pitch venture capital. I mean, there's nothing better um, that, you know, there's no better way to learn how to do something than to review other people doing it in the context of sitting in the room. And so luckily they allowed me to, to be there and do the scientific diligence and sit in on all of the review committees and um, actually do the reviews and, and, and look at financials. And I learned a ton during that time. Um, given that we were an institute that was um, a nonprofit institute, there was going to be real difficulties with the IP, um, with what the IP was going to look like and how it was going to, how it was going to work. And so at the time, as we kind of went through that process um, and also understanding, and this is another thing that I think I didn't understand at the beginning um, was how difficult the regulatory process would be for what we were doing. Um, Understanding those things. um, I sort of, kept the idea of the company going while I was out there trying to get, you know, trying to put together what it would look like to get through the, you know, the regulatory hurdles, continuing to develop the technology. And then um, as I was doing that, it, it morphed itself into the consulting side just because by necessity, because, you know, it was going to take a, the runway to get through the regulatory part and the IP part was going to be quite long. So the question was, well, how could I continue to um, leverage the brand and reputation of the company um, to build its brand and reputation, to build more contacts, to bring in more revenue? Well, consulting is a great way to do that, right? Because you get to work with a lot of different people. They learn about what you're doing. Um, you can consult where you're giving something of value to them. But then at the same time, you're saying, hey, by the way, I have some additional things that I'm working on under in this company what, you know, what do you think, you know? And, um, so it's a great way to build relationships and network. And so, so I did that. And so, um, and, and so that, that's really where the company, um, stayed until I, I had to divest cause I, I moved to a different position, but, um, but that's, that's really sort of where, where it was. And it still, um, exists, um, in, in, in sort of a limbo form right now, I would say it's sort of like star Wars, uh, when Han Solo was in the car, you know, frozen in carbon, um, <laughs> I, I, I knew that there would be a Star Wars reference somehow uh, in, in, this, in this interview. Um, but let me ask you, did you ever get a chance to actually go pitch venture capitalists? Uh, or yes. were you sort of, you did. Okay. Um, and I'm assuming they're all folks that were kind of uh, bio, uh, you know, scientific oriented folks yeah. Uh, versus, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so, and you know, and the biggest lesson I learned there was yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to ask what you're, what, what did you learn from that? Yeah, it's, it, it, there were, there were a couple that, there were a couple surprises. Um, one, one of the things that I learned very quickly um, that was not a surprise is I think the secret, um, and, I, you know, with a lower capital, with a lowercase s, not a capital S, um, is that you have to find, you have to do your, do yes. just, you're doing due diligence on looking for who your customer base is. You have to have that same strategic approach when you're looking for strategic investment, because 
you have to find people. And this is where the punk rock stuff comes in for sure. You got to find people. This is why the DIY movement was so instructive for me. You got to find people that are going to resonate with your philosophy from the very beginning. You cannot convince somebody who's skeptical of you from the very beginning with all of the data in the world, you're rarely going to bring that person over if they're not the right person with the right mindset. Yeah. So you have to set your meetings. And I didn't do that early on. I did throw the spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks approach, which a lot of people do because yeah. it's a logical thing to do. And I was speaking to a friend of mine that just started a company last night and uh, um, he's, he's a, he was a venture capitalist and now he's crossed over and started a company very similar to what I had done in my career, um, which is sort of the other way around. You know, you usually want to make all of your money and then go invest um, after you started a company. But um, that, um, you know, what entrepreneurs, whether you're scientific or not, don't realize is there are lots of different kinds of venture capitalists out there. Um, and folks that are investing in bio and pharma um, are probably not the same folks that are going to invest in a dating app. Um, I happen to be a generalist investor. There are some of us out there that will look at anything. But, um, and I think more, more likely, the more that you get into the weeds about things that are like a vaccine, you're really looking for more specialized type of investors. I'm not saying that there aren't somebody that could be a generalist investor. But the point is that when you're speaking to these people, you can't, it's like you've got, in your life, you play different roles. You are a mom, you're a cousin, you're a student, you're a worker, you're a boss, uh, you're a customer, you're a vendor, and you wear a different hat and you behave appropriately. And it's sort of the same thing when you're approaching venture capitalists. So when you're going up to somebody that is focused on, you know, SaaS applications and sending him your business plan for this, you know, uh, you know, vaccine for monkeypox, and you're furious that he doesn't get back to you. Well, take a step back and a number of things. First of all, we get thousands of pitches, um, and very, very few of them are going to get answered. I happen to be somebody that actually goes through every pitch, which is crazy. I don't know many people that do that, um, but certainly not, you know, any of the partners that I worked with. They're probably smarter than I am, but I felt that part of my job in, in uh, you know, some of the investment roles that I have was building the ecosystem. But the second thing is know who your audience is, right? I mean, you can go and look. I'm public. I'm all over the internet. You can see the kinds of investments I've made. Uh, I clearly haven't made a pharma investment. I don't talk about being interested. And yet you're sending me, you know, a 90-page document to look at that's uh, a, a business plan for some pharma idea that you have. Um, and, and address me as sir. There's so many, you know... And like big X's right there. Uh, and remember, you're asking somebody for money to run a company. And if you can't figure out what sex the person is, what they invest in, know what they are looking for, which clearly I'm like, your business plan, I just need to know five pages. I need to know what it is. Do not send me a 60 page. And you're still doing that. And then you're asking me to give you, you know, between five and $20 million for your idea. I mean, you know, I think... It, it becomes sort of obvious that this is probably not a match. And so I really ask entrepreneurs to think about the job of the investor. Um, and I, and I want to say this in your episode, because I think it's very important. Um, I think investors want to do good deals. 
um, there is a perception, especially among the scientific and technical community and people that are not, um, you know, they don't deal with investors. I have so many people come up to me. I sent my business plan out to five people and they didn't respond because it takes a lot more kind of stick to itness. I mean, I know people, I know actually a VC that had to go to 700, 700 limited partners to raise her first fund. It was a small fund. This is a VC. It's the same thing though, right? She's an entrepreneur. She's starting a fund. And uh, her second fund, she's been so phenomenally successful, has been oversubscribed. She doesn't talk about that, but she really should. Because that's what it takes sometimes. You are dealing with so much noise. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. It's really hard to get into the door to see funders. And then on top of it, dear sir, here's my pharma idea. I mean, make my job easier, right? Good news, we got the internet. You could do a ton of research. You can find out who are, you know, in Michael's instance, who are the folks that would be interested in this stuff that's coming out of his lab and has to do with CRISPR and, uh, you know, the genome. And, and you can, I mean, it's, it's all, there are plenty of investors, right? And then you can narrow down who are people that seem to be folks that you think could add value that you want to work with. And you should also look at it as a marriage. You know, it's not just them picking you. It's you picking who you're going to be working with for hopefully a long period of time and hopefully people that you are going to help make you successful. So it is very much also a vetting process that people don't remember. They just think like, I've got a business plan and an idea and you should fund me. And I'm like, think about my job. I'd like to not get fired. Um, and I would, I'm never going to get fired for not doing a deal, but certainly I can get fired for doing the wrong deal. And so this is just to go to your point that and this is something, it's not just with technical and scientific founders. I think it's very, very, very important for people to do their homework before reaching out. And then you zero in and you just turn into, you know, like a laser focused on getting to those investors any way that you can. Um, so just anyway, sorry. No, no, I think it was great. I mean, I think that that is really so true. And this is where, um, again, we could go in so many different directions tonight, and maybe we have teal for three or four more of these. But, um, you know, this is where I see the danger in all of these universities just taking these students and saying, oh, just start a company, just start a company, just start a company, right? Because starting a company is, is really just the easiest part. Um, that, that's, there's really not much to starting a company. I mean, you can come up with an idea a deck, a name, get a registration, you know, and you've got a company. It's, and it's not even coming up with the idea, which some people would say, oh, that's pretty hard. Well, I don't even think that that's hard. If you're really invested in your field, you will find niches that need to be filled. Where I think it becomes very difficult and where there's almost no training is exactly what you talked about, which is fundamentally these are human relationships mm -hmm. that are processes. And so at their core, even if you're going around to venture capital folks and you're looking for early stage funding, no matter what industry you're in, having a human connection with somebody and understanding their perspective, having empathy enough, like you said, to put yourself in their shoes. In my job, my current role, I am the same thing. I look at, I've, I've, a, I've evaluated over 200 companies this year. Um, I'm always looking at innovation, but so when you're at a really, really hot VC, 
you're probably twice that, three times that. So put yourself in that other person's shoes and ask yourself, if you were doing that job, what would you want to see, right? And so, like you said, that really gets you down to, from that 60-page business plan, down to five slides. And and it's also just doing the due diligence on who you're speaking to, right? Right. Right. And and making sure that you're going to the right investors. And I think you did something very, very smart, Michael, with... um, asking your university if you could sit in and listen in uh, to, you know, uh, I guess the pitching because you learned through, oh, uh, these are the kind of guys that are in the field. Uh, This is sort of what they're looking for. Okay, that guy was too long-winded. Okay, maybe we needed to make this, there needs to be, you know, a summary, a pitch deck, and then I have to have the really long pitch deck. I mean, the goal is you want to get into their office, then you can present your 60-page pitch deck. Um, Right? Don't don't send them. You've got to have two lines and people will say, well, my science or my technology, it can't be said in two lines. You're probably not going to get into the door. You really need to be able to capture somebody, tell a story. And, and I often say this. I've also written an article about this called why should be somewhere on the Internet. Why do bad deals happen to good people? I have seen extraordinarily astute investors. I'm talking about that have six decades of experience do crazy deals because they fell in love with the story, uh, with the potential of the product, with who the entrepreneur was. Oh, you see the guy like falling in love with the entrepreneur, falling in love with the impact that this potential product could have. And I'm just thinking, but does he not see this as like a money pit? Um, and so there is that sort of field of distortion that happens. But it, it, just keep that in mind, right? You are dealing with human beings. It is relationships. But at the end of the day, I always say, help me help make you successful. Um, Show me how this is going to turn into a business. And by the way, that's not, you don't need to know everything as a scientific founder. VCs know that you don't know about these things, but they need to understand at least how this thing can be turned into something that's going to impact, hopefully, millions of people because they all want to scale and they want it to be huge. They want, I mean, this is horrible comparison. They want it to be a COVID vaccine type of situation where everybody's got to get it, right? Everybody's got to have your product. Um, And that is like the lovely, that is like the, you know, the kind of A1 situation that VCs are always looking for. So help me kind of figure out how I can, you know, because it's not just me, I've got a bunch of people that are my partners that I have to also uh, kind of say, I think this is a great idea. Um, this is where I think they're, they may not have the expertise or inclination to invest in the company, but, you know, these decisions are often, uh, you know, there is a little bit of a consensus element and these are your colleagues and you want them to kind of think it's a great deal too. Um, but I do think that it is ultra important that the entrepreneur think just a little bit about, all right, I've got this great thing. How does this apply to real life? And then help me figure out how we're going to build a business around this. But I do think it does mean two things. Um, and this is what I, when I speak to, you know, when I was in the government speaking to entrepreneurs at NIST or DARPA or the USDA or one of all national laboratories, part of my agenda was to demystify um, venture capital because I think things like Shark Tank do not help. Um, I really blame my own industry for you know, you, you watch Shark Tank and people think it's like these five guys with cigars and mustaches that are holding your life in their hands and are really excited to crush you like a mosquito. Um, and it turns into a game. And unfortunately, uh, that has painted the entire industry. Um, and then they're also 
um, you know, folks that are running around that probably aren't helping um, with this reputation. But what I say is, look, great VPs will want to do the deal. They are looking for a good deal to do. They want to be a part of that story of building this phenomenal technology or this platform or this vaccine or whatever it is. Um, help them see it. So I, I want to say, you know, these are guys with jobs, too. They want to do a good deal. Uh, so don't think that they're out there to kind of crush you. And then second of all, once you identify the investors that you kind of want to reach out to, do your research. I mean, what Michael was doing is phenomenal, right, of seeing what works, what doesn't. Um, and then the individual VCs, who are they with? If it's a strategic investor, you need to consider that he's got a big company behind him or her that may or may not be interested in the deal. Uh, when you're looking at a smaller shop, you know, they, when I say smaller, I don't mean smaller. I mean like an independent shop, like an Andreessen Hor Horwitz or a Kleiner Perkins or a Sequoia, you know, they may, they have a little bit more because they're pure financial investors. Uh, but you still need to know what partner am I going to go to? Who do I want on my board? Probably the guy with the expertise or the connections or the personality or whatever it is that you need for your company. So it's just as much as a research and shopping trip for you as it is for the entrepreneur. Well, and, and I think, again, good points. And I just want to add to that too. Um, the other thing I would say that's so super important is your diligence, your diligence as an entrepreneur. And this comes back to the empathy question. If you go and do your diligence and are honest about where you sit in the marketplace, yep. that win you a lot of favor, even if your technology isn't the latest and greatest. Maybe you're not best in class. Maybe you're first in class. But you've gone out there and you've been very honest to say, yeah, I think I, you know, I've got a lot of headwinds from this other company or they've done something that looks a little bit better than us. But here's our value add. Inst people instant credibility. Right. And instant people are credibility because I, let me tell you, we will find out. Right. right. People think if you're like, I have no competitor. I'm like, really? Or this idea has never been done. I'm like, every idea has been or done. They or more than likely what I see is. They, they list the competitors, but they underrepresent what the value that those competitors bring to the market, right? And so, yep. you know, just be honest. Like if, if Pfizer's got the next mRNA vaccine and you're in the mRNA space, just say it. Like they've got the next blockbuster mRNA vaccine for X. However, we've got the ability to treat this niche market or we need to go after this. So you'll get a, a lot closer of a look. The other thing I'll mention, particularly for... For scientific founders, that's important is you're a scientific founder. You have got to find the business partner that is going to be that you're going to be able to trust, but at the same time is going to be able to make the pitch. I can't tell you how important it is. You know, so much of this is driven by data analytics and numbers. We all agree on that. I'm a scientist, but you've got to have somebody with some personality, passion, and <laughs> I mean, that's unfortunately true for those of us who aren't, you know, aren't that great at that. You just have to realize that and say, look, I got to have somebody on my team that's going to make the pitch. That's going to be get, that's going to do a little showbiz, you know, that's going to be able to really sort of tell our story in a way that's going to be compelling. And I think that's so important because um, I see a lot of really good ideas that are presented by people that, you know, not, nothing against them it's not their fault. It's just not their foray and it's really flat and it falls flat in the room and the room is important too, you know, and, and this is where 
to sort of bring this full circle, how all the indie rock stuff does come into play because you think about being in an indie rock band, right? You're trying to get signed by a record label. What are you doing? You're essentially pitching an artistic sort of idea to a bunch of people that you don't know. And if you don't do it with some level of credibility in terms of, you know, really being honest about, you know, what your audience is like or what your sales are, and you don't have a show where somebody can come out and see you with some sort of pizzazz that catches them along with the idea itself, which is your music. I mean, that has to be really good. You're not going to get that record contract. Now, of course we're in a new world. So the record contracts don't, don't really exist as they did when I was younger, but the same set of principles there as it is in the entrepreneurial world, you know? And so, and, and, and so when I got my first record contract, it was because not, not, of course our music was, I thought was good. You know, some people might think it's horrible, just like some people, <laughs> think, you know, some people might think other scientific ideas are not so great, but the reason we got signed was as much because we had a connection with the person who was running the label and the philosophy of the bands that they wanted to have on that label. It's as much was a much about that as it was about the music that we wrote in the first place like you have to have a base level of talent but then beyond that comes all of these other intangibles and it's the same for as you know you're going through the entrepreneurial journey you've got to have the intangibles too you can't so you you can't just rely on i've got a great idea i've done a little bit of market research and we kind of fit a niche let me throw together a, a deck let me get my friend who's like associate dean of research and development at university x so i have kind of a big name on there and i'll go pitch it with you know a couple people that started the company and maybe that pitch is really flat right it's all of these components have to come together they all have together and they and it, it is like a musical movement you i'm sure you've had this experience i know i have as somebody who you know evaluates companies i know when i see it when i see it I know within the first probably minute that I'm like, okay, I need, this is something I need to dig my teeth into. If I don't get that vibe and it's a vibe as much as it is driven by data, of course the science has to be there. I'm not undermining that part. It's both. It's both. But, that's, that's what I'm saying. Right. Like why do good, right. why do bad deals happen to good people? It's you've right. got to have both. Right. And so, so yeah, I mean, there is something to say, be said for, Maybe the CEO or the CSO in, in this case doesn't make the pitches. Maybe it's your business development person because they've got a great, maybe she's got a great personality and she's like totally great with giving these awesome presentations. Put her out in front. She's the one that should be making the pitch, right? And like, if you're truly a team, you all are going to wear these different hats in different contexts, right? Maybe she doesn't want to do that, or maybe he doesn't want to do that. That's fine, but 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 at least take you don't have to make the presentation to the venture folks as the CSO. It, you know, there's no it has to be done this way or that way. And so I really want entrepreneurs to really think about that. You know, look inside of your team and understand strengths and weaknesses on the team beyond just what your function is. You know. Um, you know, maybe you do have somebody on your team that was a was a theater major. You know, it doesn't hurt um, for sure. I've seen some great presentations with some folks that even have said, you know, I have a background in theater. And, man, they have given some great – I'd buy whatever they're selling, you know. <laughs> like, that's part of it. So, 
um, I think that's important too, to keep in mind that it's not just the analytics, um, but fundamentally you do have to do your diligence in a way that's credible and not undersell the competition. And I see that a lot too. And, and I think, you know, it, it really is that combination of being able to tell a story. And by the way, I think um, substance is something that, uh, as you mentioned, you can quickly pick up on immediate and, and venture capitals are looking for something specific. And by the way, this doesn't mean that good ideas don't get passed on. That's the other thing to remember. Not everybody is going to be drawn to something, even if it is, I'm just going to use the the big hits in my world, like the Airbnb or the Ubers of the world. Right? Plenty of people passed on those ideas. Um, and um, and in fact, I think there's a, the famous story about Airbnb is that, um, uh, you know, a very well-known VC firm passed on it. And uh, the head of Y Combinator wrote him an email and said, please take another look at these guys uh, and said the, they're going to be big. And the VC, you know, uh, partner, and I think this is all documented. I think it was Union Square Ventures uh, said, um, you know, uh, we're going to pass on this. So again, also keep in mind that um, it's not going to be everybody's flavor. And that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you don't have a great product, but it is, and I think substance, even if you are a terrible presenter, it helps to, to have somebody that can tell the story. Um, because as I mentioned, um, I do, I have seen many a time a very astute investor fall in love with a pitch, a product, um, a market opportunity, an entrepreneur, sometimes all of those things um, because of, you know, the story. Um, and, uh, and I've also seen actually the other thing where they haven't been great storytellers, but you know, I, I've had that distinct experience where I immediately knew, um, with a product, uh, because, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the founder said to me, you know, we don't have a TAM, a total addressable market. Um, and I was like, it doesn't matter. I still want to talk to you guys because it was something that I had specifically and millions of Americans have a problem was in the credit card space. And I was just like, if this would make buying things so much easier. Um, and so that was something that was just a no brainer because we'd all had the experience of like not being able to, you know, pay for something at a food cart. And, and so it's more a general technology example. Uh, the investor will be able to see it, but the storytelling piece is something that is, that is sort of important, but I want to, um, you know, we've talked it and we could, I think we can, you know, we haven't touched upon your book, and you have written a really interesting book because I think CRISPR in and of itself is a very interesting thing to so controversial to uh, delve into. And that is something that you've clearly, you know, waded more than knee deep into that pool. So um, would love to talk to you about that at some point as well. And I think that we could go on about sort of the VC entrepreneur relationship of what we can do. We should definitely do a session, but I want to zoom in a little bit on the punk rock stuff. You grew up in the Baltimore punk rock scene. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, when I was coming up, it was really kind of hardcore punk, you know, um, that all of that was happening. Um, Merkin records was a big record label here. Um, and I remember them, you know, when I was growing up, there was a lot of, activity because of discord in dc Um, and you know there was just a lot of sort of cross-pollination between dc and 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 baltimore in terms of bands and things like that yeah absolutely 
So um, I didn't I didn't realize that there was a Baltimore scene because I grew up with DC and Discord and so all of the great bands that came out of there and my favorites, Marginal Man and Bad Brain and for Fugazi actually came out when I was kind of growing up and moving away and stuff. And uh, ironically, I didn't think that they were that great a band. <laughs> of course, everybody ended up loving them and they gained national prominence uh, and famously, you know, were straight ads and didn't sell out and all that stuff. But phenomenal rights of spring, uh, Scream, um, Beefeater, Dave Grohl was the original drummer for Scream course went on to uh nirvana and the food fighters but all came out of that scene i did not know that baltimore had a sort of uh you know scene going on i must have known but um maybe too far away and there was just stuff happening in dc but i thought it was really interesting to hear about that yeah i mean it, that's the dynamics of 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 our of our region i mean uh for for music you know it was always kind of like um as a growing, so it's funny that you mentioned it that way because growing up in that in that during that time, you know, I listened to a lot of the DC bands that were on the Simple Machines label, so like um, Tsunami and um, Grenadine and Ida when they were still in DC, um, and yeah, I mean, like uh, of course now that's kind of evolved into bands like Beauty Pill, which are now sort of part of that more mature, older kind of side of things. But it was really interesting because, you know, starting a band in Baltimore and, and, and then sort of playing in DC was always like stepping into a different world because the music scenes were so siloed from one another. They really were. It was, you know, if you were in Baltimore and you played in DC, that was like some exotic place that you went and vice versa. I mean, DC bands would come up, I remember DC area bands and one of my favorite bands, punk bands from that time was the Exploder. Um, and they played this band. They, they were from Northern Virginia and they, I mean, just an amazing punk band and they played, they opened up with, for this, um, for this, now I'm blanking on the band right now. Um, anyway, so I, I, they opened up for another band that I really loved and I can't remember the name offhand. Um, but I remember them saying to me, I was at the show um, and after the show, I was talking to them. And, oh, Rainer Maria is who they opened up for. Um, and they were like, wow, like there's so much cool stuff here in Baltimore. Like, felt, like, awesome. like Rainer, like Rainer Maria Rilke. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. So there's a great indie band called Rainer Maria. And, um, uh, yeah, they, 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 they were one of the most amazing shows I ever saw was actually the, the Exploder opening up for Rainer Maria. Um, and actually it's what inspired me to start my label, which was called the beach fields. Um, B-E-E-C-H-F-I-E-L-D-S. But um, but they said to me when they were up, they were like, I didn't know Baltimore had so many cool venues. Like we had venues called, we had Hammerjacks at the time, which had turned into Sonar. We had the Rat. We had the Bank. We had the Auto Bar. We had the wind-up space. Um, we had, and we had art galleries and stuff. And I would go down to D.C. and I'd play shows at like D.C. 9 or the Black Cat. Um, or something like that. And I'd say the same thing, you know, I'd be like, I didn't know DC had all these great venues. So it was just a time where, you know, it was like early days of the internet and it wasn't as much, you know, cross pollination. And that's what was so fun about sort of playing music around here was that you could play music in your own city and build up a following. And then you could go down to DC and it was like, it was only 30 minutes away, but it was like being in a whole new city and you could win over that audience. And so and you were also doing Beachfield, I think, a little bit later because I think you guys started in like 2000, right? Yeah. So, so I started the label in like 2003. So my my first band, 
um, was right out of college. And then I started the label in 2003 and I did that all the way through to, through 2011. So, um, so that so was I, a, that was a lot later than for the sort of DC scene I came out of because I was like mid eighties, early nineties. Um, and so, but there's still a, a thriving sort of scene in DC. And I, that's why I, I, I don't know, was there a scene in Baltimore at that same time at that time? Or I'm sure there. Yes. In fact, um, during that, so I lived through sort of two phases, which is the phase you're talking about, the earlier phase. And then there was sort of a later renaissance in Baltimore that culminated with bands like Dan Deacon and Future Islands. And actually in 2008, Rolling Stone had an article on how great the Baltimore music scene was. And it was like this big triumph. And it, a lot of my friends that were in the scene here, we all sort of like, we felt it was like a big triumph for us to finally get recognized. Um, you know, and so, so that was really exciting. Um, yeah, the label that I, it's funny cause I had a, I had a really serious sort of touring um, deal going on before the label sort of, I, I did a lot of my solo work and then I was in another band and then the label got started and it was sort of like a second phase for me when I started the label. So it's, it's kind of interesting cause I had a whole life before that. Um, and I spent a lot of time working on college in, on college radio and stuff like that. So, um, but anyway, yeah. So the Baltimore scene really, I think got recognized in 2008 for being, you know, being kind of arrived. And then, um, in 2011, I left and went to, went to New York to work. So, um, I, when I came back in 2014, it was still thriving. It's still thriving. I think the pandemic really, I think a lot of music scenes across the country, but particularly the ones like Baltimore, um, less or so in DC, the pandemic has really made it difficult to kind of recover from some of that. So, um, I'm, I'm kind of, sh- I couldn't tell you where it sits right now. Um, cause I think it's still trying to figure itself out. Um, cause you know, independent music took a huge hit um, during the pandemic. So, and I um, wonder if you guys have a little bit of a snob factor because certainly in our DC little hardcore corner of the world, um, there was such a snob factor. I was such a snob about music, and I thought it was me. And then I went away <clears throat> to school in Massachusetts, and then New York. And there was a huge, you know, DC contingent that moved up to school in New York as well. And I had so many of our non-DC friends be like, you people from DC are such snobs about music. I mean, I listened to everything, but they were like, you just have this thing about your scene. Like, and of course we'd all go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and everything from college and go straight to like DC space or the 930 club, which interestingly, the old 930 club, uh, which I don't know if you had a chance to go, had this giant pole right in the front of the stage. Yes. So you couldn't see, you know, anything. And it was like, <laughs> why am I like even here? So you would go see Bad Brains and like, you know, see like a quarter of the show because not just the people like in the pit in front of you and as a woman, you don't want to get hit. So you're like standing against the wall, but also there's just a giant pole. But it's funny when I wrapped up, oh, and we've got to do another show on government work. But when I wrapped up my government work and I was leaving, it was just when there was a little window opening in the pandemic. So kind of in the fall of, um, what are we in now? 2020, 2021. And there was a new 930 club that opened and the Foo Fighters uh, announced 
three shows at the like the day after I was moving at, or the day right the day that I was moving and I was like oh my god this is all full circle I have to go and so I um of course they sold out in seconds I had no idea that I found out too late because I was busy moving um and packing and so I called up the new 930 club and I left like long messages and then I also finally got to somebody and said look I've got to tell you this I like I grew up in this scene um they were like, they said to me, um, ma'am, do you know how many people are calling us and giving us the same story? And I was like, no, but I really was there. But anyway. <laughs> no, it's true. I, yeah, the short answer is yes. They're, I mean, snobbery, of course, uh, especially from, I think, this area. Um, I remember coming up in rock bands and it was like, if you didn't listen to these people, these people, and these people, forget it. Don't even talk to us. And especially when I went to my first, um, when I worked at the college radio station and I, I remember walking in my first day and they were like, so who do you listen to? You know, and I'm listing all these bands that I'm into and they're like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> you know? and they're like redirecting me. Like you're going to have to listen. I remember one of, um, I remember one of the bands that I had to listen to was this band called Trans Am. Like I didn't know who they were. And then that was such a big deal. And like, you had to know certain, you know, certain types of It was of genre. very upsetting to you. <laughs> it was like, no, I didn't, you know, and I was too, and I thought I was all like, had my indie cred because I was listening to all, really just getting on to sub pop bands like, before they got on the sub pop. Yep. Like even that was too mainstream for these people that yep. like, I, I talked to. So of course, and of course, then when you play music, um, so I play in a band now called Underlined Passages and um, the music's very, I would say, mainstream. And even now I'm a snob to myself because I'm like, I think back on those days, and I'm like, my 19 year old self would totally be like, what are you, what are you doing, dude? Like, I this cannot so be seen with you. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, but it's you also know, kind of funny how things have changed so much because people are not nearly as snobby about music as they were back in the day. And yeah. part of that too, I think was because you had to find it. Like it wasn't, Correct. you know, you had MTV, but like, that's what you didn't want to do. So I remember my first project that was really successful was my solo project that I did when I started it when I was 16. But the reason why it got really successful was because it was all done in cassette and it was traded. People would trade the cassettes. That's how people knew about me. And that's part of what the cred was, was like, you know, oh, you you know, I can't find out about you unless I like go find this person that has your cassette, right? So there was kind of like this whole social aspect to it that I think is you don't have when you have Spotify because you just type it in a computer and find all kinds of obscure oh, stuff. Oh, it was a scene. It was an absolute scene. I mean, I remember walking up to the old DC space, which is so sad. It's a Starbucks today. I, I grew up in Washington, DC, and then I never went back um, until I worked for government. And so I went to go see all of these old haunts. And I was like, God, I remember the 930 Club was like, you you know, downtown wasn't really that safe. Um, so, you know, I drive our family Volvo mm -hmm. down there with my friends, you know, our station wagon and parked it like a mile away so no one would see. Um, but, um, you know, it was these kind of grungy clubs, you know, downtown and they don't exist anymore. It was a real scene. You would walk up and everybody would be yep. hanging out, you know, that's what was so great. 
Yep. And, and there was a little, you know, attitude from people and, and it was really great. But, you know, I have to tell you something funny. So when I grew up and went away to college, so the one band that I hated more than everybody else uh, was the Grateful Dead. They were anti everything I stood for. Of course, I go away to college and I walk in and my roommate is into the dead and, um, you know, is a pothead. And I was not, you know, I didn't do drugs. Um, and the only thing we had in common is we both smoked cigarettes. She came in and she was like, hi, sorry to tell you, I put down that I was a non-smoker. And I was like, oh, thank God. But um, I said to her, you can never play that music in this room. And then she said, and you can't play your punk rock in this room. So that's how I got into Led Zeppelin and Morris. I was like, okay, that's, we will. And I learned everything about Led Zeppelin, um, you know, learned about the whole, you know, 70s and got into that music. But um, what was interesting is flash forward a couple decades later, I became friends with John Perry Barlow. Um, who, uh, the late John Perry Barlow, who was the lyricist for the dead. Um, very interesting person, worked in technology. And so we would always hang out when he would come to New York. And that's a whole nother show. Really, really interesting things. You know, we went to cop bars together and uh, he's a Mormon that, be, you know, was a cattle rancher and then became this lyricist. And um, he had invited me one day, I think it was actually up here in Boston, to uh Bob Weir, who uh, was, uh, you know, with the Grateful Dead, of course, uh, had a show with his band called Rat Dog, which uh, achieved also some prominence. Um, and uh, he invited me to go see the show. And the other funny thing is when I was in college, I did date men that were also listening kind of, um, you know, they listened to harder stuff like Jane's Addiction, but also the Dead and, you know, Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors because they all came up around. I went to college to Barnard and so they all came up around that university scene at the time that we were yeah. there so I would hang out with those bands and I was like yeah it's okay but you know I'd be embarrassed to talk about it if I came back to DC <laughs> so I, no um, that's very funny totally it's a very so yeah now I'm very, like proud I'm like I knew the spin doctors back then and blue traveler and, you know but um I so um John Perry invites me to this show up here in Boston and um, I went to go listen to it. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And then we went backstage. I mean, he knew that I totally came out of this punk rock scene. I hate the Grateful Dead. I told him all of this. I was just like, this is going to suck when I'm coming because you invited me. And I'm an open person. And it's free. So I'm coming. So I want to meet Bob Weir. So I went, watched the show. It was really nice. And then we went backstage. And I was like, oh, you know, Mr. Rare, it's so nice to meet you. And he runs in and goes, she hates you and she hates everything you stand for. She's from the DC hardcore scene. Bah! And I was like, so embarrassed. And Bob Weir just looked at me and I said, it was a very nice evening. And uh, thank you so much. And he gave me a couple of CDs. And I was like, thank you so much. So gracious. And I really did enjoy the evening. Um, so anyway, I, I have the CDs somewhere in a box. I don't think I've ever listened to them, but I was incredibly embarrassed because John came running in to sort of rid his old friend by uh, pointing out that I had told him that I hated the Grateful Dead and, uh, you know, that th it was just beneath me. I was I was making a uh, concession coming to see Rat Dog. But anyway, um, so funny that you have that story, because I can relate a different. I think I was a slightly different, a slightly later era than you, but the same idea, because like I remember bands in the DC scene like Tuscadero and um, Velocity Girl and all of that. That was kind oh, of I remember my... them. Yeah. But that was the same idea was that, you know, you kind of had to show up 
and you knew you were going to get some attitude and you got had to have a certain way of navigating all of that. I, I, I do have to say I learned a lot of social skills from figuring out how I was going to go and kind of navigate a scenario in which you show up with the immediate attitude. It's so funny how it's so different in music now, but I would say in our society, because I was showing up to places where I knew the immediate attitude was, you need to show us why you need to be accepted here versus it's the flip now. Whereas we accept everybody. And I think for the better, of course, but I also think like the interesting thing was that it really forced you to sort of make decisions about how you were going to navigate certain social situations. Like if I wanted, if I saw somebody there that I thought was really interesting, like how was I going to talk to them when I kind of already knew I was going to have to name drop like six bands, half of them I didn't even listen to, but I knew those were the ones that, and of course then what happens if they ask me a specific question about like like, Rodan or something. With Rooster Crawl or uh, White Out, they're like, what are you talking about? You're like, yeah, Yeah, exactly. The band from uh, Inner Baltimore City. Yeah. No, I mean, it was was... was so formative. (laughs) And it was cool because, I mean, one of my earliest memories of D.C., speaking of old venues, was um, at the... at the, the the old radio music hall, WUST Radio Music Hall. Um, and that was kind of a competitor for the old 930 club. It was a bigger club. And I went there um, to actually to... So this will be funny because I got laughed at because it was a Weezer show. But I, I didn't... <laughs> I, like, I, didn't, I like Weezer. <laughs> I do too. But at the time, it was like, what are you... You know, what are you doing? You know, know. and... Embarrassing. And, <laughs> but the, but the reason I went there was because I, I wanted to see Tuscadero and Archers of Loaf and they were opening and they were local. Well, Archers of Loaf wasn't, but Tuscadero was. But but I remember at the show, I'm in the audience, like getting ready to see, I think, Archers of Loaf go on. And I'm standing right now. What's the guy? Rivers, the, the main dude from uh, Rivers, Rivers Como. Rivers. Como. Yeah, I'm standing like right next to him. And I'm like, we're just chatting it up. And, and he was like, so what do you do? You know, like, we're just having, I was like, oh, I'm in this band. And I was like, you, you know, and I knew they were signed to a label. I was like, so what, I, was, I literally said, I'm like, so what do you do? Like, how do you do this thing? And he's like, oh, well, here's what we did. We, we took like macaroni, you know, like the, the macaroni that you don't cook and we spray painted it and we glued it to the front of the CD cases and we put glitter and stuff on there. So like when the A&R guy opened it up, like, you know, he'd see all these normal CDs, but then he'd get ours and he'd have all this crap on it. And he would remember us. And that's like he literally just said, so you need to do that. You guys will be Is that a fine. true story? It, I Did guess he really do that? I'll never forget it because that's what he told me. And I, I remember driving home that night. I think I was like 17 or 18. I'm like, I got to go get some macaroni. That's so funny. <laughs> you know, but but this these scenes that I grew up, you know, the other place that gave me the same vibe is, I don't know if you know anything about the Palm Desert scene that Queens of the Stone Age and those guys came out of. Um, I'm a huge Queens fan. Um, but, and I only really got to know, like, late, like, I would say, like, I, I, I remember, you know, when... Um, I forget the Red Album, uh, Songs for the Deaf, uh, came out, I think it was like in the early sort of mid-90s. And I remember seeing them on MTV and going, oh, weird. And Dave, I think Dave Grohl was actually drumming um, for um, uh, No One Knows uh, in the video. 
and didn't pay too much attention. That I got into them more recently. I was, I want to say like in the last five, six years, I went to go see them and Eagles of Death Metal. And, but I, you know, I get very obsessed about things. And that's why this show is called Curiouser and Curiouser because we'll go and look at all of the show episodes and go, what do any of these have in common? They don't. It's just what I'm interested in. So I um, went and, um, uh, looked at, you know, all of these documentaries about Palm Desert and the scene, the generator parties. I don't know if you know anything about, but it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and it gave me the same vibe as DC, like all of these kids out in the desert, uh, you know, and I was like, that's so cool. I wish I'd grown up there with like a giant generator. And they're all like listening to Caius you know, because before Queens of, you know, they were in yep. Kais. And Kais, all of yep. these bands, generator bands, they were called generator parties. And there was this incredible scene that grew out in the desert. And Josh Homme always says, you know, there's nothing in the desert. It's like, there's the desert and there's the mountains. And it's where these two things come together. It's a, twi- I mean, I'm getting goose pimples talk- talking about it. But these two things that come together, that's a twilight that scene was born out of. And I just remember watching these, and you can see them, they're all over YouTube. You just have to Google Palm Desert music scene and generator parties and they'll all come up. Um, and Caius is like a, a huge band in, in obviously like in that scene. But watching them completely, I was like, this is what DC was like. Oh um, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I, I have to say that I was in that scene, but I wasn't even like a hundred percent in there because I was also a girl. Um, I lived in a neighborhood where all of these bands were uh, the guys in these popular bands were actually the older brothers of my friends and they all lived on my street. So soul side King face, um, you know, all of these guys were like in our neighborhood, the folks from Fugazi, all Northwest DC, some of them like literally like babysat by their sisters. And so it was like the older brothers. So I was kind of like going as a younger kid's sister, probably like get out of here, squirt, but was just got into it and was like, you know, I was just enthralled and would yeah. just like go to the shows. But um, I, I loved it. And, and I, I tell you what, I tell you what I definitely miss um, are, that came along with what you're talking about are all the zines and stuff as well, because I think that helped. Like that was like the narrative for these for these scenes. Yeah. See, I didn't I don't remember um those because I because I think for you it was it was like maybe ten years later so we didn't have scenes what I do remember I mean we used to do stuff like just make up fake bands and put up posters all over the neighborhood <laughs> and there was one we called it Apache front me and a couple of girls We're like let's see who shows up you know so we made we made up a band I, I will have to say this is all out of my devious mind Apache front and you know opening you know a couple of famous bands and then put them up all over the neighborhood and then had no idea we didn't go to see if anybody showed up at DC space but um so I remember there being zines maybe some of the maybe there were um but and I, I don't even remember how you would find out because there would be places where there would be flyers that we put up like literally on a telephone pole or in the back of a newspaper um, there, I think there were a few newspapers that had kind of what was happening at DC space, uh, or I think it was the listener auditorium. I think it was, or the list auditorium, I forget. Um, but it was mostly DC space or, um, nine 30 club. And then the black cat and back alley cafe came around after that. Um, but anyway, so it was an extraordinary scene. Um, I think we need to do a show on punk rock as well, but I also see that it is nine 45, um, and we have our hour has stretched into an hour and 45 minutes, which is why I told you we need to do a separate one for a book, <laughs> we need to do a separate one for government, 
we need to do like a separate one about punk rock because there is so much to talk about. So if you are willing, I would love to have you back to continue the discussion and we can give it more hours um, because we just have that uh, one hour kind of uh, artificial limit we've placed on it in people, uh, you know, are tired or their throat hurts or I I can talk, uh, but, you know, trying to be considerate of our guests. So. No, this is um, absolutely, I, I think you and I have a lot to talk about. And, and you know, this is the fun part of, of meeting people that just like on the entrepreneurial, you know, we talk about VCs that, that, that you connect with. This is, I mean, it's really cool to connect with you. I think we, we have a lot of similar experiences, viewpoints. Maybe that's because we came out of these music scenes and these similar yeah. geographic regions. Maybe I, there may be something to be said for that. Um, but I would love to, I, I think there's a lot more to talk about. And I think some of the topics we talked about today, you know, we kind of bounced a little bit, but there's yep. some deeper issues below them. I think you and I could really get into. I would love to do that. And so let me, in, in wrapping up, can you throw out as a science, somebody that's been a scientific founder and who yourself is now evaluating companies, uh, to, you know, help resource them and, and help them become startups, help them become big companies. Can you throw out maybe one or two pieces of advice for somebody that maybe doesn't know where to start? What do they do? And maybe you have a general big piece of advice that could be useful for somebody that is thinking about uh, uh, walking along this path. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's so much out there. So it's, you know, it's hard to really sort of say something that somebody else hasn't said. Um, but if I was, if I was sort of thinking about it, um, I, I would say the first thing is to not be afraid to um, put out an idea that may not, you know, may not be turned into a full-fledged company. I think just going through the process of starting a company and pitching an idea out there um, is, is, is really important. So um, I guess that's sort of a version of the, the old phrase, don't be the perfect let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, yeah. if you have something that you're passionate about, that's you've a great done, advice. You know, you've done just enough diligence to, you know, like we talked about before, it's really important to place yourself in the context of the market and you think you have it, go for it, do it. Because even if it isn't ultimately successful, you're going to understand this um, in a way that me telling you things are just never going to get across. That'd be the first thing. And then the second thing is what we said earlier, just to reiterate, being open-minded and being flexible and connecting with people is an active process that really requires a lot of empathy. And so I think it's really important to be self-reflective. If you know those aren't natural things that come naturally to you, put as much time as you would into having an exercise routine or into listening to podcasts to get, you know, sort of information about starting a company, put as much effort into knowing yourself as you do those other things and building out an active process for being open-minded and flexible. I think those two things, you know, would really go a long way in setting you up to have success, no, no matter how you define that. Um, and it actually may actually help you define success in a broader way such that you walk away from the experience with something that's going to enrich your life. Because at the end of the day, there's two things that small businesses do. They help others and they help the founders themselves. It's, 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 you know, not fully a selfless act to put together a company 
you know, even if you're trying to serve patients, you're also doing it because you're trying to bring your own life meaning. And uh, maybe that meaning comes to you through service. So if you walk away from the experience with a deeper appreciation of yourself, that's also success in, in my mind. That is a great piece of advice to wrap up on. Um, Michael, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. And we did go over a lot of different things, but I wanted to give everybody sort of a flavor of uh, sort of the incredible human being you are that is bringing together sort of all of these different uh, um uh, disciplines and interests. Uh, there are people like you and Dexter Holland from The Offspring that exists. We actually had an article up about him that where he's talking about how he had to leave uh, kind of biology and his HIV research to go tour with The Offspring. Uh, but then he came back and finished it. He's also a pilot. And the world goes around because of people like you. So thank you so much for joining me. We'll definitely do more sessions. Um, and I want to thank everybody that was listened in and also um, remind you that next week we've got a uh, phenomenal conversation with the CEO, former CEO and chairman of the Intel Corporation, Craig Barrett. Uh, he was the CEO, chairman, board chairman, obviously uh, an iconic, really legendary technology and business figure. Uh, he is also the endower for the Barrett's Honor College uh, at the university, uh, uh, sorry, with uh, at Arizona State University. His wife happened to have been the last secretary of the Air Force. Uh, she was also the ambassador to Finland uh, and worked in several presidential administrations as a fighter pilot and trained to be an astronaut. So um, a real power couple there. But my interview is with, it's a pre-recorded one with Craig about the state of American and charter school. Uh, that was pre-recorded, um, so we're going to play that at some point. It might be at Wednesday at 8 p.m. Uh, or at another point during the week, but uh, we will put up the schedule here, and it will also get tweeted out uh, if you follow me. So thank you, everyone, for joining. Michael, thank you so much again for joining, and we will see you guys next week on Curiouser and Curiouser. Take care, everybody. Have a great night.